Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like knees, badgers and pain. And we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of benches is in fact all about Roman society or that the history of fruit eating is all about Tudor medicine. Tudors, Tudor doctors, in fact, thought that eating fruit was bad for you. They did, and then all of the Tudors ignored the doctors and ate as much as they possibly could, especially imported fruit. Fascinating, fascinating little history of fruit there. The man not sitting opposite me, because we are the other side of town because of lockdown, he will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world this man is one of the country's leading professors of history. He's also very, very good fun. And he's called James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. You are a flatterer as always. And the man not sitting opposite me because we are in lockdown is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis. He also is a lovely person, very friendly, super intelligent, yada, yada, yada. You get the, you get the gist. Hi, Sam. I miss you. This- this, I miss you too. This is remarkably different to our um, episode on insults, which we've just done, which I, I, I would urge everyone to listen to. The history of insults is great, and I really enjoyed doing that one. I'm still reeling from that one. I, I, I got, <laughs> yeah, I got quite carried away. Um... I'm a little, little bruised. <laughs> um, guys, this is another episode in our special homeschooling series, which we're hugely enjoying. I hope you're enjoying it too. There are thousands of you downloading it. Um, each episode, what we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history and we prove that it does. And today is really good fun. Um, this one was my idea. It was, yes. Which is unusual because most of these are James's ideas. Um, uh, I decided I wanted to do the history of lunchboxes. Um, and in this case, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about lunchboxes in relation to the First World War. We're going to help you guys understand what life was like in the trenches. But before we do that, we're just going to stop and have a bit of a brainstorm, a bit of a think about how you can you can study lunchboxes more broadly, how you can think about it across time, because it's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? It is. And for me, it's all about food and portability. So it's about the history of picnics. It's the logistics of feeding people outdoors and on the move. And I think about this because my my eight-year-old daughter, as part of homeschooling, had an English project where she had to design all sorts of things. And it culminated in us having a picnic, uh, actually in our back garden because it's lockdown and you weren't allowed out into, into parks. But it made me think about the meaning of food in history. Food and feasting. Take, for example, the potato, the humble potato, and think about the, how the meaning of that particular foodstuff can change across time and across cultures. Think of the staple potato 
that's the basic food stuff for many people around the world. You can connect it to the Irish potato famine, but also then think about it as an object that is placed on the on the table. What does it mean to actually place it down on a table surrounded by hungry people? What is the etiquette of helping yourselves? Think about the complexities of cooking potatoes, whether it be chips, whether it be dauphinoise potatoes. You have class differences. You have gendered differences. Uh, think about the portability of chips or crisps or French fries, the naming of it. It's, it's extraordinarily complex. Hmm. Like a bag of crisps is like a mini lunchbox in itself. It is. Isn't yes, it? absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was starting to think about this, wondering how you'd actually do it over time and all the different kind of sources you can look at. And one of the most interesting one is Trajan's Column in Rome, which is a huge monument. It was built around 100 AD and it's got carvings. It's got reliefs of Roman soldiers all the way up it. And it's fascinating. All of the many, many different things we can learn from that about behaviour, about appearance, about rules, about regulations, about haircuts, about shoes, whatever it might be. And one of the most interesting things about it is that these soldiers are shown carrying their kit bags. It's like a sort of leather satchel with a cross sort of shaped straps in the middle. And um, there's something rolled up at the bottom, which might be a cloak, it might be um, a, a little mat for, for sleeping on. But really importantly, they have a little string bag. And it's very clearly depicted on all of the Roman soldiers' kit. So he hasn't done it by accident. This guy hasn't made it up. The artist who's doing it, he's very carefully drawn this. And historians think that that little string bag was used for carrying their food, dried food, lentils, wheat, barley, but also what they took with them everywhere was smoked cheese, bacon and something called hardtack, which is like hard biscuits. So there's a, an example of where you can actually see a lunchbox in history with the Roman army. I think it's brilliant. That's absolutely fascinating. Do you know much about Elizabethan progresses? No, what was that? OK, so um, Elizabeth I, um, very important monarch during the 16th century, annually she would go on progress around the important political hotspots, largely around the home counties outside of London. So she would basically go on a route that would stop off at all these sort of major sites, normally the houses of the nobility and gentry. And this would take a sort of month or so and she'd sort of go out on tour. It has its roots in Anglo-Saxon England, where Anglo-Saxon monarchs used to go, or, or Anglo-Saxon leaders, uh, rulers used to go around and extract tribute from their people. So touring around the countryside was how they extracted their wealth. Um, and so this still survives in the 16th century. But nonetheless, the interesting thing is not only the route that Elizabeth takes, but also all the organisational logistics that need to be put in place for going from one place to another. And there are accounts of lines of people about three miles long traipsing from one property to the next and of course one of the things that they're carrying is not only the all the sort of um all the equipment they will need but also all of the food and so all of the food gets taken and transported to the house and then you've also got a lengthy period of time afterwards tidying it all up and cleaning it because basically you've got hundreds of people who basically descend upon a particular political hotspot like for example Kenilworth Castle in 1579 mm. which was the 
the home of Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. And there are household accounts from this period and they record uh, the purchase of various delicacies, including Jordanian almonds, peaches, pomegranates, quinces, strawberries and citrus fruits. And apparently um, Robert Dudley gave uh, the Queen uh, some prized strawberries uh, when she went to visit him there. Oh, I love that. So you've got a kind of a permanent society in, in some respects. So the Elizabethan court, and they're usually going to be hanging around one of the palaces, but they all decide to move and travel around. So you've got a, a kind of a permanent society that's essentially becoming itinerant or nomadic. Peripatetic. Um, peripatetic. Like yes. Um, so what you can do then is you can use that idea to think about... Um, uh, exactly the same thing as how you feed a nomadic or peripatetic um, uh, societies in general. Mm. And it's not a much, a much broader question. So there are entire societies like the Zhongnu who lived in Central Asia, um, believed to have been, um, been the nomadic tribes that gave the Chinese their horses for the first time. And also they were the early ancestors of the Mongols and the Huns themselves became very, very important nomadic people, nomadic tribes. Um, in Central Asia. You've got the Scythians as well from that area and also um, all sorts of other nomadic peoples down in Iraq and down in Iran, which I um, studied a lot when I was doing my programme on the Silk Road. Doesn't a bag of cheese survive from the Scythians that was in that British library or British museum uh, display exhibition recently? It Isn't does. A little bag of cheese? That's, that's basically a very early lunchbox, isn't it? It is absolutely the same thing. Um, and you can also think about it um, uh, in terms of pasties, James. Mm. <laughs> I was thinking like but the best Lovely. example of a perfect little lunchbox, of course, is the Cornish pasty, which we both know because we live in Exeter, that it is not Cornish. Um, <laughs> Sam, uh, you, are, you are starting quite a war there, I think, by I throwing know. that one out there. A well-known local historian, a nice chap called Todd Gray, who we both know very well, he was doing some research and he found um, a little piece of yellow parchment tucked inside an old audit book, which he discovered. And the, the date of the book was 1510. Oh. And it proved that there was a Devon recipe for Cornish pasties. And it was 236 years before the earliest known Cornish recipe. So I think that proves it. I'll, um, I'll let you and Todd go up to bat for that one when you get yeah. when you get deluged <laughs> by protests. I'm staying on the fence, listeners, on this one. But the principle is, of course, a Cornish pasty or with a Devon pasty. It was a pasty is a way of, of wrapping your meat and your veggies up and taking it down the mine. So it's all to do linked with tin mining, and that's also linked with the Industrial Revolution. So um, yeah, a perfect example of of just how important a lunchbox could be. A little a little um, portable food. Um, a portable food and how important it is, because without portable food, you can't have soldiers doing what they do. You can't have miners doing what they do. You can't have huge numbers of people essentially going out and changing history. Um, so there you go. We're now just going to talk about it in terms of lunchboxes and the First World War. This was all inspired by something fabulous that I found online. And it is in the museum in Verdun in Canada. Do you know where that is, James? Uh, it's in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's west of the Great Lakes. It's southeast of Lake Manitoba. I had to look it up. I'd never heard of it before. I still couldn't really put a pin on a map. But all you need to know, if you can imagine where the Great Lakes are, it's, it's west of them. It's more in the middle. Yes. I used um, to live southern, on the Great Lakes, so I know exactly Canada. where we are. All right, just, yeah, we sort of head sort of north and west of it. And, and you get to this little town in Canada, which is where a private Jay Pattinson of the 1st Canadian Mounted Rifles ended up 
leaving his lunchbox, his mess tin from the First World War. And it's fabulous because he didn't just give... There are lots and lots of examples of mess tins which have survived from the First World War. But Private Pattinson had engraved his. And he'd engraved it not only with his name, but also the name of his unit and a, a sort of a wonderful copy of his regiment's cap badge. But he'd also written down the... Um, he'd sort of etched into it the names of the famous battles that he'd been in during the First World War, that that, that mess tin had been at with him. So we know he was at Vimy Ridge on the 9th... Um, Oh, Vimy Ridge, which is the 24th of September 1917. We know he was at Amiens on the 8th of October 1918. We know he was at Arras on the 26th of August 1918, at Convoy on the 9th of September 1918, at Mons on the 11th of November 1918. There are some serious battles, some of the most significant in the whole history of the First World War, let alone um, the Canadian military history of the First World War. So they're significant just because it allows us to place Private Pattinson and his mess tins at these most pivotal moments. Um, and simply because he took the time to engrave something um, that's managed to survive. So it means these lunchboxes are not, uh, are not just important historically, but because they are so clearly linked to Private Pattinson. It actually, James, reminded me of some bowls and plates which had been discovered in the wreck of the Mary Rose, which sank in 1545, so some time before the First World War. But that link between a person who um, carved their initials into something so personal um, was really important, and it, it helps us uh, put our, our, ourselves in the mindset of those people who used those bowls and plates at the time. So that's what inspired me to do something on lunchboxes because um, because I love them so much. These these little they're called mess tins. Let's start with that. Um, it's from an old French word mess, meaning a portion of food, and you use it in the army now to refer to your mess tin. Also, you'd eat in a mess, an area where people would eat their food communally. Um, they're a very distinctive, simple shape, and the British used those, which had um, well to start with. Actually, the British used their own individual ones very, very early on in comparison with other armies, as early as 1813. And these ones have a, a, a distinctive D shape. And that is because if you have a flat side on your mess tin, then it's more easily attachable to your webbing, to um, the, the, the belts and the, uh, the, the, the sort of the structure which goes over your uniform, which allows you to attach all your kit to. So that's why they've got a flat side, very distinctive side of it. Um, and it's worth stopping to think about what they put in, the, in these tins as well. Um, out. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I've got this figure here. It's amazing. 3,240,948 tonnes of food were sent from Britain to the soldiers fighting in France. And they were often cooked up in a big mess, and then they were they was all handed out to the soldiers. But they could also eat food which came in a tin, And one of the most famous ones from the First World War was something called McConaughey Stew. It's a stew of turnips, carrots and potatoes cooked up in a sort of thin soup. And it was made by um, a company called the McConaughey Company that was based in Aberdeen. And how about this for a review, James, of your food? Warmed in the tin, McConaughey was edible. Cold, it was a man killer. (laughs) And that's from someone who's living in the trenches being shot at every day. Um, And another reporter described the stew as an inferior grade of garbage. (laughs) It's absolutely fascinating. So on the one hand, you can look at this in terms of what people thought of it. You can look at it and how it was made. Um, But also think about the McConaughey Company. They're fascinating. These are two brothers, James and Archibald. They were brought up in Suffolk and they moved to Aberdeenshire and they set up a business canning fish. And because they learn to can fish so well, they start to expand and see other opportunities. And then in the Boer War, this is in 1899, when it starts, lasts for three years, they get a contract to supply the entire British army. And that contract was still honoured more than a decade later, the outbreak of the First World War. Um, So you've got a bit of meat and a bit of veg and a bit of gravy in a tin. And the general impression is that it was okay if it was warm, but if it was cold, it congealed because there was an awful lot of animal fat in it. And you'd end up with basically a lump of fat on top of some pretty um, unidentifiable vegetables. And one of the key problems with this is is the smell that occurred when lots of people were eating it together and marching. There's a quote here. It says, The McConaughey stew ration gave the chiroops flatulence of a particularly offensive nature. So we marched along on air, released by hundreds of men breaking wind. <laughs> it reminds me of that, of that scene in Blazing Saddles, uh, which yes. I actually, astoundingly, I watched the other evening. Um, hilarious, but I can... I can imagine the the horror, uh, the the horror to the to the nose uh, that yes, must have absolutely. exuded from it. So, guys, you've got these personal mess tins, which I think soldiers had a, a real kind of bond with. They were used for eating out of and also for drinking out of. They were used for heating, for cooking as well. And the uh, things that was put in there was either made in an army just uh, kitchen or they would be sent stuff from home. There are lots and lots of people being sent stuff on the front lines from their families at home. And I think James is going to tell us a bit more about about how it all worked out. Absolutely. Now, one of the most astounding things about food during World War One is, as Sam said, it's just the enormous quantity that was consumed and therefore that needed to be produced, shipped, delivered, prepped, cooked, passed to people and then eaten. And then, of course, there are the byproducts of that, which we won't go into. And I'd yeah. like to explain a little bit about this. As Sam said, it's an astonishing total of over three million tonnes of food that was sent from Britain to soldiers fighting in France and Belgium during the First World War. And not only that, but the British Army employed over 300,000, that's 300,000 field cooks, to 
cook and supply the food. And often they were doing so in extremely challenging conditions and often under fire. And it's really quite a logistical feat trying to supply food to the army, as is quite clear from a letter by General John Monash, written on the 11th of January, 1917. And I quote, The big question is, of course, the food and ammunition supply, the former term covering meat, bread, groceries, hay, straw, oats, wood, coal, paraffin and candles, the latter comprising cartridges, shells, shrapnel, bombs, grenades, flares and rockets. It takes a couple of thousand men and horses with hundreds of wagons and 118 huge motor lorries to supply the daily wants of my population of 20,000. It's extraordinary. With reference to food, we also have to see that all the men in the front lines regularly get hot food, coffee, oxo, porridge, stews, and then he puts, they cannot cook it themselves, for at the least sign of the smoke of a fire, the spot is instantly shelled. So this makes it really, really difficult. And then they must get it regularly or they would perish of cold or frostbite or get trench feet, which occasionally means amputation. So this is an incredible logistical feat. And if you have a look at the official statistics of the military effort, army rations to the British Army, 1917 to 18, per person, they're supposed to receive, for the frontline troops, 4,193 calories. And this includes 16 ounces of bread, 16 ounces of meat, four ounces of bacon, um, nine uh, ounces of vegetables, three ounces of sugar, six to seven ounces of butter or margarine, three ounces of jam, half an ounce of tea, two ounces of cheese, and one ounce of condensed milk. So this is an incredible sort of amount of stuff. But we know that actually in practice, they didn't quite get this amount. We know that British soldiers at the beginning of the war were given about 10 ounces of meat and about eight ounces of vegetables a day. The problem then, though, is that the German blockade becomes much more effective. And these rations by 1916 were cut drastically. So soldiers were getting about six ounces of meat a day. The bread ration later on in April 1917 was also cut. So the other thing is that despite the sort of plans to give them this sort of this this meat, tinned meat and that kind of thing, by the 1917 in the war, they're having to turn to much cheaper forms of meat like brawn and rabbit skins and, and things like that. And it's worthwhile thinking a little bit about the provisioning. So not just what they're what they're receiving, but it's worth thinking about the provisioning and how this was got to them at this point. And just think about this, that in the early summer of 1914, the regular British army was about 247,000 people. By the end of the sixth week of the war, it was almost half a million. And so you have an incredible challenge here, not only training these people, giving them uniforms, creating places for them to live, but also you've got to feed them. Now, some of the training can be improvised and the equipment can be improvised. But if you don't feed people, they die, they starve, they're weak and they can't do what they want. So you need to get that absolutely sorted out. And it's worth 
reflecting also on how this cooking was done. And Sam's talked a little bit about this, about the mess tins. But also, when you're feeding such an enormous group of people like that, the problem is people getting bored with food. So much so that there is a manual of military cooking and dietary mobilisation that's produced in 1915 to help the army cooks. And it included recipes and even a 100-day menu, menu schedule. Uh, when soldiers were in camp in a permanent place, there could be a permanent cookhouse set up. And that's quite self-explanatory and quite easy to do. But the problem is, once you're in the trenches or you're in a temporary camp, it's much more difficult. So what they do is they set up field kitchens and these manuals give very detailed instructions on how these cooks should make improvised kitchens, basically using all the rubble and materials that they might find in and around the trenches, so bricks or corrugated iron. But in reality, troops were constantly on the move. And so there are instructions for how to make mobile cookers, and these would be improvised and could be easily carried around with them. Now, moving on, it's also worth thinking about once they get into no man's land, how once they get, once they advance and once they're fighting, and it's much more difficult to get them fed in that situation. And also, just before they go over the top, before they actually fight, you want them to have decent food so that they have the strength to actually carry out the military engagement that they want. And they're given something called iron rations, which is emergency food rations. And this is a can of bully beef, biscuits, a sealed tin of tea and sugar. And the German army, the, the General Sixt von Armin, uh, reports on the German army during the First World War. He says, it is necessary that fresh troops going into the line when the precise state of the battle is uncertain should be supplied with the third iron ration. All troops were unanimous in their request for increased supplies of bread, rusk, sausage, tinned meat, tinned fat, bacon, tinned and smoked meat and tobacco in addition. There was also urgent need for solidified alcohol for the preparation of hot meals. In various quarters, the necessity for a plentiful supply of liquid refreshments of all kinds, such as coffee, tea, cocoa, mineral waters, is emphasised still more. On the other hand, the supply of salt herrings, which increased the thirst, was found to be, as a general rule, very undesirable. There is no necessity for an issue of alcoholic drink in warm or dry weather. And then we can go on to think about what people felt about the food. And the interesting thing here is not only the complaints from the rank and file, but it's how the officers were treated differently and ate different kinds of things from the ordinary soldiers. So listen to this for complaints from the rank and file. One Harry Patch reported, our rations, you were lucky if you got some bully beef and a biscuit. You couldn't get your teeth into it. Sometimes if they shelled the supply lines, you didn't get anything for days on end. There were five in a machine gun team and everything we had was shared amongst us. I used to get a parcel from home. My mother knew the grocer pretty well. And a man called Richard Beasley was interviewed in 1993 about his experiences during the First World War. And he recalls, in training, the food was just about edible. But in France, we were starving. 
All we lived on was tea and dog biscuits. If we got meat once a week, we were lucky. But imagine trying to eat, standing in a trench full of water with the smell of dead bodies nearby. Now contrast that to a letter that Major Graham wrote to his family about the supply of food to soldiers on the Western Front. And he writes, I'm sorry you should have the wrong impression about the food. We always had more than enough, both to eat and drink. I give you a day's menu at random. Breakfast, bacon and tomatoes, bread, jam and cocoa, lunch, shepherd's pie, potted meat, potatoes, bread and jam, tea, bread and jam, supper, oxtail soup, roast beef, whiskey and soda, leeks, rice pudding, coffee. I mean, actually, that sounds pretty good. Um, and, and, and then he goes on to say, we have provided stores of groceries and Harrods have been ordered to send us out a weekly parcel. However, if you like to send us an occasional luxury, it would be very welcome. So contrast that, you know, the awful rations that we were describing right at the beginning and a, and a delivery from Harrods. And you get something of the difference in food standards between the officers and the ordinary soldiers. This is this is um, this is Blackadder goes forth, isn't it? It is absolutely um, fascinating stuff. Guys, I think it's time for a little quiz to see if you've been paying attention. If you can't answer these questions, you've got to go back and listen again. First question. What was the name of the stew in a tin given to the men? Number two. What was the main food that soldiers ate on the Western Front? Number three. Why did British mess tins have a flat side rather than being circular? Number four, how was food prepared in the trenches? And last but not least, what was the difference between the food eaten by officers and that by ordinary soldiers? Hmm, that's some good questions there. And I've got a little task for you as well. Uh, one of the big complaints about food in the trenches is that the battalion's kitchen staff, they only had two large vats to do all the cooking in. It meant that everything was prepared in the same vats. And as a result of that, it meant that all of the food ended up of tasting of something else. For example, soldiers often complained that their tea tasted of vegetables. So to give you the um, true honest experience of, of uh, being in a trench, what you need to do is you need to get a pan, fill it with boiling water and cook up some vegetables in it. Maybe some potatoes, maybe a bit of cabbage. And then in the same pan, I want you to make yourself a cup of tea by boiling the water in the same pan and then tasting it. And you will have some horrible vegetable tasting tea, but nonetheless, it will transport you all of those many miles and all of those many years into the trenches of the Western Front. That sounds disgusting, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very sorry for this task this week. You could also make a Mononaki stew <laughs> as well. Um, if you have a look online, you can find a detailed recipe for this, uh, which involves 340 grams of beef or one can of corned beef, 140 grams of waxy potatoes, 30 grams of onions, 30 grams of carrots, 30 grams of cooked beans, such as white beans or navy beans, 60 millilitres of beef stock or water, 15 millilitres of flour and 15 millilitres of fat and some salt to taste. You need to cut your fresh beef up, slice your potatoes, onions and carrots, steam or boil the beef and the vegetables together until tender, heat the fat in the pan and then add 
your cooked potatoes, carrots, onions, beans and beef over medium heat. Make a batter of the stock and water with flour and add to the stew. Cook until thickened and then salt to taste. Delicious, Sam. I think it'd be delicious. It's a shame we can't. Uh, you can't put it in a tin and leave it. Leave it. Yes. Leave it on the shelf for two and a half <laughs> years. Well, do you know what? Yeah. I was at a. I was at a VE Day street party the other day, and we had a. We had a quiz for the street, and my family uh, in our little garden. Uh, we won, and the oh. prize was a tin of corned beef. So I shall try this. Uh, I shall try this over the weekend, I think. And I think for the real deal, you have to uh, eat it cold. Yes, you have it's to cook death it. to Let, anyone. Oh, goodness me. Uh, guys, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I did very much. There are so many different histories of lunchboxes I now want to do. I want to know how the Zhongnu in Central Asia transported their food. Fascinating stuff. Um, do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com for all the stuff we've got on, for our details of our books and all of the other fun podcasts. And do please get in touch on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can find me at James Daybell. And you can find the podcast on on at Unexpected Pod. Anyway, guys, do please get in touch. We'd love to hear from every single one of you. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye. Bye, guys. Stay well. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.